Hello, and welcome back to Run Out Groups. I am Dave Fonseca, and with me, as always, is my friend, Wolf Rambats. Hello, how you doing? We are recording on the second week of July, so it seemed like an appropriate time to talk about some baseball and indie rock. We got a new segment where we'll introduce you and ourselves to some new music, and we think you'll dig it. But first, Wolf, how are you? Dave, I am doing okay. Uh, I like how we both got sick of writing about other stuff and independently opened letterbox accounts without telling each other at around the same time. That's uh, it's... when I when I saw when I saw you like uh, come up with my suggested friends in letterbox, I I started thinking about the song "Do You Like Pina Coladas," where it's like <laughs> it's like a couple that's been together too long and like they don't realize they like all the same stuff. They just had to see each other in a new context to realize it. And that yeah, was, that's that's letterbox for us. Yeah, yeah, I like how you're writing really heartfelt reviews of Little Big League, and I'm just like <laughs> shitting on Gremlins. <laughs> It's okay. I have. I also have like an extremely horny review of uh, Presumed Innocent. If anyone's interested. Yeah, that's a pretty good one, though. I think that. I think that's a pretty good one. I, I would you. also. I would also like to say that uh, for listeners at home, Dave and I uh, met in the flesh and played basketball like a month ago. Oh, it was so good. And uh, like you know, we 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 pulled the we're old men stick on this thing all the time. But my knees still hurt. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean to to. Um, I actually do. Uh, I appreciate the the mother of the of the seven year old who allowed us to play basketball with her with her son for like three hours and didn't call the cops on us. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds far worse than it is, but yes, we're fine. Um, I, I I do notice that she kept her her car idling near the basketball court <laughs> the entire time, so not total trust. <laughs> Looking uh, furtively in my direction to see if I was going to do like a drug dead drop somewhere behind like. <laughs> A tree, yeah, yeah. No, but like I'm shuffling around the office like I'm end of the career shack, like trying to like <laughs> <laughs> like run down the court after getting like a rebound or something. Like Ooh. it's 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 pretty dire. Celtic shack, yeah, Celtic shack for sure. Uh, okay, before we get into today's uh, main topics, I want to catch you a little bit off guard and ask you a question. Uh, have you watched the Hulu show, uh, Hulu show, The Bear, Dave? If a bear releases prestige television in the woods. Do I see it? <laughs> I think you're the, actually probably the only person in our demographic who hasn't watched it, which is okay because I, I'm not a big TV fan myself and I often do skip these prestige shows. Um, but you know how in Pulp Fiction when Jill says, you know, my wife's a vegetarian, so that means I'm a vegetarian. Yeah. Uh, my wife watches the bear, so I watch the bear, which is not meant to be, you know, a diss because I actually ended up really quite liking it a lot. But something stuck out to me about this show, which is that, uh, and it, it brings to mind a theory about uh, REM's tenth, uh, ninth album, Monster. Uh, I assume you owned this album and probably like returned it like most people did back in 1994. I bought it the day it came out and I still have my copy. You still have your copy. I, I do too. Uh, I, I don't dislike this album. I just I know that it's sort of like a mainstay of, uh, of the return bin. Uh, and is mostly sort of like dismissed as like a late career, like actually the kind of like the end for REM by a lot of people who were with them throughout the IRS years. But something I'm starting to notice now is that among people in our age demographic, which is sort of like older millennials, people who didn't quite make the Gen X cutoff, that Monster is kind of like a big deal. Uh, and an album that people are trying to sort of vault back into relevance. And I say this because um, the song Strange Currencies, which is the final track on uh, Monster, is used throughout the second season of The Bear as sort of like a persistent needle drop. In fact, the uh, the music supervisor, Josh Sr., uh, describes it as the soundtrack to the second season. Um, in addition to that, um, a movie I've brought up before, I don't think you've seen, Under the Silver Lake, the song What's the Frequency, Kenneth, is used as a as a needle drop at a pivotal moment in the film. And, and that movie uh, is sort of what I consider to be like the definitive text of elder millennial ennui. And so I guess you could say, well, Monster is a, is a good album with some good songs, so it's not surprising that it would be you like its songs would be used in in movies somewhat frequently, but I kind of see it a little bit differently. And my perspective on this is, you know, we're both thirty nine years old, uh, 
so not quite 40, but we're at an age where we were definitely too young to experience REM at the peak of their sort of critical relevance. I mean, when the murmur came out before we were born um, and they signed to Warner in 89, I believe we would have been five years old. But Monster is the first album that came out that we were sort of old enough to get it when it came out. And I think the people who are making movies like Under the Silver Lake and creating shows like The Bear are in a similar age demographic. And this feels almost like their attempt to place Monster side by side in relevance with, you know, say, for example, you know, uh, Fables of the Reconstruction or Reckoning or any number of or document, any number of their like prime era albums. Um, so that's my theory I'm running by you. I'm kind of catching you off guard with this. So I guess I'll ask you a more general question. Like, do you think that we're going to be seeing sort of more of this, of kind of maybe unusual songs and albums used throughout in, in music uh, supervision, sort of as a way, not just to enhance the, the films or the TV shows, but also to sort of like uh, validate the musical taste of the creators? Definitely. I mean, this is kind of like the life cycle of all rock to an extent, right? Yeah. yeah. Where, you know, Led Zeppelin was thought of as a joke until it was reclaimed by writers in the 90s. Yeah. And then, you know, that's when they made the, the vault to kind of canonize among the classic rock greats. And the same thing happens with, you know, Black Sabbath and so on and so forth. So I can kind of see it. You know, I think Monster is an interesting choice for this kind of reappraisal because it's a bad album. Mm-hmm. 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 I think, I think you are correct in when you stated that this is kind of like the, the drop-off period for REM. This is the end of the Imperial phase. Yeah. I think, um, yeah. yeah, I think the next album after this one's pretty good. I think it's an okay rebound, but then from there, like you can kind of tell that this is a different band going forward and you know, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Bill Barry leaves after uh new adventures in hi-fi and it's sort of like, I don't think REM ever did anything like outright embarrassing or, or, I mean, everything that happens in their career, there's sort of an explanation for, and I think they like retained their integrity pretty well. I just don't think monster is particularly good. I, I mean, I mean, this is, our, this is our ninth album. How many great albums can a rock band make, you know? Yeah, I mean, the, the funny thing about Monster is that all of its singles I remember as being better than they are. Mm-hmm. When you Have you gone back to revisit What's the Frequency, Kenneth, recently? Uh, yes, I have, because sort of like weirdly in coincidence with this song being used in the bear, I've been on a massive REM kick mm. and listening to Nothing But uh, for the last couple of weeks. Um, I have to say the song that I thought was really good and didn't hold up is bang and blame. That's not um, terrible. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I still have a soft spot for what's the frequency Kenneth. Um, I love the way the guitar sounds on that song. The it's in my head. That song is 30 BPMs faster than it actually yeah. is on record. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so like when I hear it in my head and it's like, you know, this is this, this kind of bangs good power pop. I'm into it. Yeah. And then when I listen to it, I'm just like, man, this is like, turgid a turgid trudge it's almost like death yeah. doom-esque <laughs> as far as the pacing is concerned you know the same um, thing with the uh, same thing with like star 69 on there yeah like the only song that i think i'd rescue from there is like Crush say, with eyeliner. So, uh, oh okay i was gonna say let's say it at the same time and see if we pick the same one uh that's that, that song is pretty decent uh circus envy would be the one for me which yeah I that one's pretty good of, yeah yeah i i came to like reappreciate uh Thanks to Matthew Perpetua, who had a really good uh, project, like reviewing every single R.E.M. song. And he makes a good case for that being like the best song on the album. And he pointed out some stuff that I didn't hear in there that I I heard on reappraisal. But no, in the end, I still think that like it's an album that people our age have maybe grown to love because it's their R.E.M. album. But I still don't think it's on par with the IRS stuff. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think, you know, REM in this kind of context, although they, they you know, the, the unfortunate thing is that they stopped making music. Yeah. So this this won't hold true for, you know, later stuff, but it's kind of like the James Bond franchise where the REM record that's released as closest as you are to being 12 years old, like that's yeah. your REM album. That kind of sets the baseline for what REM can and should be. Yeah, yeah. What is your favorite REM album? Uh, uh, I mean, I'm big on Murmur now. 
Yeah. The EP is the one I go back to the most with okay. Wolves lower because I think to like that's like the best thing they ever did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's, it's like eponymous is, is, uh, excluded cause it's the greatest hits compilation. It's the first thing I bought and the thing I'd listened to the most. I probably would say like document is my, is my favorite these days though. But, uh, yeah, I have been listening to them a ton, but I think, I, I think I've reached burnout. You ever do that where you just like listen to nothing but a band for two weeks and then you don't want to see them again for like a year. <laughs> yeah. Frequently. <laughs> I've definitely done this, but yeah, to, to go back to your point, like, I think what's going to be interesting to us is when music gets reclaimed that came out when we were in the doldrums of the rock radio era. Mm -hmm. And I want to, I want to see what prestige piece tries to like rescue Eagle Eye Cherry. Yeah. I was going to say like, is there going to be like 15 years from now, there'll be a prestige television show that has crazy town in it. I mean, (laughs) I I think we're getting close to that point, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then like, to what extent, is it worthwhile or even beneficial to sort of like step in and provide the historical context and say like, you know, this, this didn't do well or people didn't like this. Is that just old men screaming at cloud stuff? Yeah. All media is a runaway train. There's nothing you can do to haul it back in as soon as it, you know, it gets off, uh, off the tracks. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I don't begrudge anybody for, you know, we all have sort of like our, uh, the, the, Every great band has a, has a mid album that people try to meme into, uh, you know, um, like being actually the best or actually really good. In fact, we might talk about a Steely Dan version of that album in an upcoming episode of Hot Licks and Rhetoric. Yeah. Uh, but for now, uh, we're going to take a quick break and pay our server bills, and we'll be back to talk a little baseball. Yes, it's less. All right, Wolf. So it is the uh, it's the All Star break which means it's the time of year where radio hosts and podcasters do like their annual segment about baseball because they don't, they don't talk about it at all the rest of the year. (laughs) Bleak. Yeah. Yeah. And usually they'll just talk about like what needs to be done to save baseball. Um, Well, uh, keeping with our theme, I I have a curveball for you. Uh, Baseball is awesome right now. Um, It, I don't really see it having any glaring problems and I don't, want to do anything to change it or fix it really. And I think that's because baseball and by extension, it's its biggest stars like Shohei Otani and Ronald Acuna Jr. and Mookie Betts. They're victims of sports fans secretly revealing their true preferences. Uh, and not to come out of the gate with like too, too hot of a take, uh, but Sports fans don't care about sports anymore. Um, at least not in a way that will change their cultural revel- relevance or popularity. But what baseball lacks and what makes it seem so unpopular compared to basketball, which seems really popular right now, is basically like free agent drama. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago when Shohei Otani was like doing things that nobody had done since you know, Babe Ruth, basically, it was in terms of, you know, the metrics that we use to determine how popular a sport is, which is basically how much people talk about it on Twitter, it was getting its lunch eaten by like minor free agency transactions. You know, it's like Bruce Brown signs with the Indiana Pacers is a much bigger deal than Shohei Otani having two home runs in like 15 strikeouts in a game. Um, and I think I've come to a point where I'm really okay with that. Um because if if saving baseball means like having the sort of atmosphere that the NBA has around it, then I I think I would enjoy it a lot less. Okay, yeah, I hear you. I think there's that element of Twitter that tries to inflate the drama of baseball, but it's just not on the same level as the basketball pundits. I think outlets like John Boy, and then you have posters like Ben Verlander, are definitely trying to, you know bring that same kind of pizzazz and energy to random baseball highlights as there are to the people that pass around basketball highlights, especially, yeah. you know, the Ben fan, Ben Verlander, if like Mookie Betts goes opposite field, it's like, Oppo taco. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. Like 40 different explanation points. And it's like, okay, cool. He's done this like 15 times this year. It's kind of cringy. I mean, I don't know. It's like, it's, I, I don't know. I, I, I think like trying to make anything like anything else is, is sort of like it reeks of desperation. 
and it feels really bad when the baseball guys try to be like basketball guys. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sports in general just kind of feel to me like media at large where there's the long form thing that you can watch if you want to, but all of it's going to get distilled down to highlights anyway, and yeah. then it's going to get memed to death. So I don't really see a whole lot of difference between like baseball and I think you should leave. Right. 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 Where it's like, it's funny because I watched the new season of I Think You Should Leave and I was like, this is this, this is not as good as the previous two seasons. I didn't I didn't like it as much. And then I, I thought maybe I should like write something about that or, or say something about it. But then I realized it was not the point because the point is that it's a it's like a meme factory. It's a highlight factory, you yeah. know, like whether or not it hangs together as like, you know, 20 minutes of entertainment is like so entirely besides the point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's that whole, uh, you know, inner, uh, pundit tree complex that immediately has to like, be like, well, uh, where do these sketches fit in with the, the, the hierarchy of classic? I think you should leave sketches. Like the show's been on for like three fucking years. Guys. I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I think I have a, okay. So not to like theory bomb you again, but I have a, a theory of why people do that. I think is, is partly because people are just obsessed with ranking everything, but I realized halfway through the season of this new season that I think you should leave is this stuff presents to me almost like an album does where it's like, okay, there's like, there's like 25 new tracks of, I think you should leave you. I mean, it's the same way that it just, it just felt like an album release almost. And like, you're going through every, every sketch being like, eh, skip, skip. Oh, that's a good. One. I'll rewatch that one. Skip. And then it does like, wow, was that a good album or a bad album? You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's De La Soul stakes is high, except they're all skits. <laughs> yeah yeah um well i mean there were some some mid-90s rap albums that probably had more funny sketches than, than this season of i think you should leave yeah i agree <laughs> I, here's my question for you does the regular season for any of the four sports does it matter no it doesn't matter but um so right now in my opinion baseball doesn't matter better than any other sport doesn't matter um and I think that's because, and I realized this recently, is that a baseball game is really just a podcast uh, that happens to have something with stakes attached to it. But now that the games are sort of like being under three hours, I can I consume a baseball game on my AirPods through the radio every day the same way that I would like I don't listen to baseball podcasts because they just can't compete to listening to two really good radio broadcasters talk about, you know, their days, their lives slash the baseball game they happen to be uh, commentating on. So that's why I think like I'm having a personal baseball renaissance because I think I've relearned how to follow it. Like accepting it doesn't matter is, has been the best part. Yeah, no, I used to be the kind of person that was like every regular season game is a perfect jewel and do not take this away from me whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. But now it's just kind of like, I don't know. I don't care. When was the last time a team with the best regular season record won the World Series? As much as we like to pretend that we've like totally grown out of this, there is a certain like level of stakes attached to caring about the team that you root for and wanting them to play well as opposed to play poorly. And a part of you that gets annoyed, like if... I mean, something like the little things that annoy me or that I still have, you know, that feel high stakes to me is like, does the team I care about, do they play clean defense? You know, it's that kind of thing. But I really don't. Bad year I mean, for that. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Uh, but I don't like, it's like, what does this, like, what does this mean for our World Series chances hasn't, hasn't crossed my mind this season, which is great. It's just, which is great. Do you see an analog between the regular season and network TV? In that everything's week to week and therefore you build a bigger relationship with the show because you're thinking about it in the downtime between. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say this, like um, I have a much better time watching television shows when I watch them week by week than when I try to binge them. I, I'm, I'm an awful TV binger. I lose, I lose focus almost immediately. Um and I probably would like feel the same way if I was if if I was like watching like four to five baseball games a day. I don't think I could stick with it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but the it's yeah, it's all about the, like the like the slow leisurely drip is what makes like following a baseball season enjoyable. 
Uh, and I feel like that's kind of what it should be with TV too. Yeah. Well, it's kind of fun to have those like months off where you're just like, huh? And like, it just like the show just sits in the back burner of your mind. You're just like, I wonder what they're going to do next season. Yeah. Yeah. Like how are they, how how are they going to land the plane there? And then the show comes back and you're like, Whoa, John Ryder cut his hair. Yeah. 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 So like, uh, you know, I, I definitely think that there's an analog there. And I think that's why the the regular season is, you know, interesting to us is because you kind of have that slow burn. And I think that's, I think that's more interesting living with that on a day-to-day basis than, I don't know, like saying, that there was a truncated regular season and then we had multiple seasons of a sport during the year. Like we could conceivably right. cut the regular season down in baseball and have like three seasons a year. But that's, I mean, it, I mean, that's truly not the point. I actually kind of feel like I, I've, I've been coming around to this thought too on, on basketball where it's like the consensus is that the season is too long and that's why nobody cares about the regular season, but maybe we just don't care about the right things. Like, I'm thinking back now to when I was really enjoying basketball a lot. And it would probably be somewhere between like 2006 and 2010. And that happened to coincide when NBA blogging was really good and very inventive. And, you know, it was sort of like free Darko and Tom Ziller and the early days of the basketball Jones and stuff like that. And the season didn't feel too long because people seemed more interested in the quirky little side characters and using the league as a way to like do like experimental writing and like flesh out people like, you know, like Gerald Wallace and like Anthony Randolph and just little weirdos who like we all knew would never win an NBA title, but we're still fun to think about. And that Man. feels totally gone now, you know? Yeah. Anthony Randolph, RIP. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, like it didn't, like, I think the reason the NBA season feels too long to a lot of people is like, well, none of this stuff is relevant to who's going to win it all this year, but there are other fun things to care about besides like who's going to win it all. Like watching someone gradually get good or someone gradually get bad and change how they play as a result of that. Like those can be fun aspects of an NBA season too. And that just doesn't seem to hold any relevance anymore. Yeah. I, I think there's going to be, I think 10 years ago, there would have been more of a push to get rid of regular season games for baseball just because it, it the, just due to the perception that it drags on too long and then, you know, uh, people lose interest until the playoffs come around. But now with like betting, there's yeah. no way right, right, right. <laughs> they'll ever right. do this with any sport. Right. Like we're getting more games, baby. Right. I know it's 250 game season coming soon. Yeah, um, yeah. It cracks me up too. Like, I mean, we're getting so off topic here, but it's been a while since we talked. Like, right. NFL trying to handle its own players betting on one of its biggest advertisers is just like, <laughs> like you guys didn't see this coming. <laughs> yeah. Um. Do you think? Yeah. This is maybe maybe we'll put put a, put a, a pin in this and talk about the, the gambling aspect of it another day. But maybe just a way to like round it out is I do feel like the gambling stuff is going to pull more mainstream. I say mainstream, like I'm talking about, you know, fucking United Nations here, but like pull more like the Nick Wrights and the Colin Cowards of the world, like are they going to be like kind of forced to talk about baseball more often because there'll be promotions where they can give you like stupid little gambling lines and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, probably. I mean, I saw somebody had some crazy parlay about all the teams that are currently first and like, mm-hmm. Like the cash out for this is already like twenty thousand dollars if you bet on that earlier in the season. So, yeah, you know, even for us to even hear about stuff like that now is just kind of like what a what a sea change as far as the the sport is concerned. But like, I don't want to belabor this point. Like, let's let's talk baseball. We're here to talk baseball. Right, like, wh- right. What what what's your favorite stuff that's happened this season? Well, I mean, not not to like be overly obvious, but this is the first year where I was like, I'm going to watch Shohei Otani every single chance that I have. Um, and because I happen to live in an area where I get angels games on TV for free, uh, through cable. And so I have watched a lot of Otani and it's just so cool for something to be not just as good as advertised, but way better. Um, so watching Otani every night has been really, really, really fun. Uh, I'd say that that's my favorite aspect of this season so far, but that feels a little bit obvious uh watching uh masataka yushida the japanese import uh and seeing him um adapt to the u.s game has been really really fun because that was a player that 
I think a lot of teams around the league were kind of questioning why the Red Sox would spend so much on a guy like that. And obviously he's, he's, he's not a great fielder. He doesn't like, he doesn't have any like plus speed or anything, but he's such a talented hitter that like having that guy be on my team has been really cool. Uh, what about you? What's been your, your top story or top thing to follow this year? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it, it, just to follow up on Red Sox, it's it's unfortunate that they're in in the AL East because that's just a meat grinder of a division, right? Currently, like, right. If you could spread those teams out across the league, I mean, I think everyone's playoff chances would vastly improve. But well, it's so funny because they're forty eight and forty three right now. Uh, they were forty eight and forty three at the break last year, but this is just it shows just shows how like context is everything. They're coming off like you know, losing eight out of 10 at this time last year. Now they're coming off of winning eight out of nine. So the vibes feel entirely different. You know, what's been interesting about this last couple of seasons as a, as a Boston sports fan period is that I don't think this generation of Boston sports fans have been trained to just behave normally, you know, like they have, (laughs) you know, they, they, up until you know 2004 or i'd say 2001 when the patriots won their first super bowl it was just constant misery and and dread and and anxiety and between 2001 and say 2018 it was just a a festival of parades and arrogance and entitlement and now it's like all the teams are like kind of bad kind of good and they have to do all the stuff that like regular sports teams do which is like occasionally they have to like let big money players go occasionally they have to rebuild and occasionally they have to question if the GM is like that good or not. And they're just like, what? We don't want to do this. We're freaking out, man. Like, and I, I don't know. I, I think it's like, it's it, watching the team has been fun, but watching like Red Sox fans learn how to root for a pretty good team has been like way more interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's weird that you bring that up because as soon as Boston team started winning, I had like a complete existential meltdown. I think yeah. we've talked about this before. It's like, I didn't know who I was anymore. I was like, yeah. well, we're losers. <laughs> we have to be losers. Yeah. This is my whole identity is wrapped up in us losing. And then when we became, when they became winners, it kind of like took the fun out of it because it was just like, like, like we're just going to do this all the time now. That's kind of weird. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, I thought there's going to be more people on that same kind of like existential dread bandwagon, but no, it seems to be me alone. And also like what, uh, becoming like unbearable idiots, also, it doesn't seem to happen to other cities. <laughs> experience the same thing, you know? Where it's right. like, like, the, like Chicago Cubs fans, from my perspective, did not experience the same like highs and lows to their team winning as the Red Sox fans did. Yeah, I'd have to sit and do like an index of like every sports fan base that I found like off-putting in some way over the last couple of years. Uh, but I, I'm trying to disambiguify you know, the arrogance and annoyingness of Boston sports fans from the meme and the reality. Uh, but I think like there's a fair amount of reality in that meme. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, even like, you know, Philly's recent run of success, like all those fans are still miserable. Right. Right. Like they're reliably miserable. Yeah. That's the thing. (laughs) They never became, well, they never became, that's, that's interesting. They, they remained obnoxious, but not, but, but still miserable. Whereas, Boston sports fans are like the guys who won a lottery ticket and then spent it all in the course of like three weeks. Yeah, no, no, I, mean, I hate to say it, but it's kind of the Trump administration. <laughs> okay, all right, uh, back to baseball just for a quick, a quick, uh, some, because uh, uh, I, I think like saying like Otani and the team I root for are the two best storylines of the season kind of undersells. Um, uh, so here's some other stuff that's been been pretty sick. Uh, Ellie De La Cruz. And the oh, Cincinnati yeah. Reds um, stole three bases and two pitches. Love him yeah. to death. He's he's right now is Fernando Tatis Jr., which is funny because Fernando Tatis Jr. is like chopped liver now. Like no one ever right. talks about that dude anymore. Right. It's like it's like that Simpsons meme where like a series of like increasingly cute lambs step in front of each other and they keep like swatting the less cute lamb out of the way. Like yep. we had, I mean, it's been a shame because um, you know Ellie De La Cruz has been so great, uh, and we haven't got a chance to see much of uh, O'Neill Cruz this year, who no. is the other like insanely toolsy uh, freak who plays for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, uh, in addition to that, uh, this is kind of a weird one, but I've been kind of uh, delighted by the Texas Rangers being so good because 
I like when teams get good by sort of walking a middle path. Like they didn't go the like the market bonanza Padres Mets thing and just sign like every good player to like really extravagant deals that are gonna look bad pretty soon. And they didn't do the Houston Astros or uh Tampa Bay Rays thing of like we're we're just gonna be bad forever and then our prospects will fill things out. Although I, I give the Astros uh more props for like signing free agents. The 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 Rangers did a little bit of everything, a little bit of in-house talent. Uh, a little bit of free agent stuff and they've got a good mix of like veterans and young guys. And it's like, that's sort of what I want MLB teams to learn from this year. Uh, what I don't want them to learn from is like the Padres and the Mets are bad, which means we should never spend money anymore. Um, and I fear that will be the lesson that people take away. Yeah. The the only bad mark for the Rangers this year is, just, you know, uh, um, uh, Jacob DeGrom seems like right. end of the road for him, which is too bad. Like what a promising career, but you know, yeah. Mets pitchers, yeah. man. Don't, don't, don't pay money for them. Yeah. Uh, I think it's funny that they went in on, on DeGrom and Evaldi, which is like very risky and still could prove to be like very risky. Uh, but so far, Evaldi's been healthy and he looks great. Um, but I mean, there's been, so, I mean, I think like with the pitch clock, we've seen uh, an emphasis on athleticism and uh, players sort of like having to have more than a single tool. And so like guys that can do a couple different things have had really exciting seasons. LA De La Cruz being like a main example of this. Just one guy I get to see every day or listen about every day is, is Jaron Duran who's a center fielder for the Red Sox, uh, who was probably the athlete I hated more than anyone <laughs> in like my life last year. Um, and has come back this season and has been so exciting. Just like he, he said recently, like every, every, every time I hit the ball, I'm thinking double out the box, uh, which is a really like kind of fun thing to think about is like players emphasizing taking extra bases. Um, like, I don't think that, I mean, baseball still has some of the, like the underlying issues that we've talked about before, which is pitchers are still being like way overtaxed, throwing way too hard and getting hurt way too often. Uh, the game is, you I mean, despite the elimination of the shift, uh, there still is like a really strong overemphasis on home runs and strikeouts, but even just the introduction of the pitch clock, you you're seeing now like here and there, some guys who's like main thing is that I'm just a crazy athlete are having really exciting seasons. Yeah. That's nice to see. I agree. But I, I, I will say that, you know, uh, uh, Analex still has its stranglehold over baseball and you can see this in the infield fielding, which is, pretty atrocious yeah what i was gonna talk to you about that i know that you're not really allowed to do this in baseball but the fielding vibes are very fucked up right now they just seem yeah. off <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> anecdotally it seems pretty bad yeah uh, i i don't think anyone's done too much research in this but i think i think this is just the after effect hangover of everyone disbelieving that you have to have a stick to be out yeah. on the field yeah. and fielding has just suffered immensely because of it yeah um i this is like now there's there's a limit to how much I can enjoy this, but watching Kyle Schwarber try to play left field has also been one of the funnest things about this baseball season. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it, it's frustrating when you have a team that could be promising if they did the right things, you know, signed more Omar Vizquel's than not. But yeah. the the fact that the Phillies are still fielding like eight DHs in yeah. defensive positions is like it's it's pretty good. It's pretty if, good. If I, if I if I could if I could describe Kyle Schwarber's approach to left field in one word, it would be disdainful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, another another uh, guy I want to talk about is um, is Luisa Rice, who is currently batting three ninety and and chasing four hundred, and every time a guy is like really good at just making contact and like finding singles. There's this, there's this big dialogue among baseball fans. Like, you know, why don't, why don't more guys just do that as, as if it's like easy as if what he's yeah. doing is easy. I mean, I know that, I mean, Luis Arise was kind of like uh hidden in obscurity in Minnesota last year, but so people don't really haven't really followed him, but he's won a batting title. Um, and everybody who talks about him, mention says that he is he is like unlike anybody else they've ever seen take batting practice before unlike anybody else they've seen approach 
at bats before. I, I was listening to an interview today with a former teammate who's like, this is the one guy I've seen in batting practice call his spots. Like he'll say, I'm going to hit it between the first and second baseman and be able to do it. So I think like the, 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 Luisa Rice thing is awesome. I'm I'm rooting for him to hit 400, especially in this hitting environment, which is really challenging. And I hope that people realize that his success is not like, I mean, yes, he does have an approach where he's trying to like shorten a swing and get hits, but it's not simply as a result of doing that, that he's playing so well. I mean, he's a freak. He may not look like it, but he's he, just like Ellie De La Cruz and Shohei Otani, Luisa Rice is a freak. Yeah, I think when people have, you know, misgivings about baseball players' skills levels, especially when they're just like, oh, like hitting 400 could should be totally easy. How come people can't, you know, Ted Williams was what, 85 years ago. How can people, why can't people yeah. still do this again? Like, I think you're just seeing the, the fall in participation of like youth sports. Yeah. Because like the reason to play sports as a youth is not enrichment or, you know, the lottery chance that you might get good and go pro. It's to, when you watch the games later to realize how hard everything is. Right. right. <laughs> I can, I can count the number of hits that I got in little league. I remember each one of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyone else that you want to shout out or kind of like, uh, recognize as someone you've like enjoyed watching play this season? Uh, Adley Rushman has been kind of fun. That Orioles team, that Orioles team has a lot of guys. Yeah. So I think that's going to be a fun team to look back on and be like, well, okay, well, this was uh, the start of something big, especially because the Orioles have been so bad for so long. Yeah. That's been kind of nice. Uh, I'm racking my brain for, I mean, there's always interesting dudes on the Rays. I just wish they were stuck on the Rays. Right. Like, right. how did like the Rays figure Ivan Paredes out? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I mean, they just have like a series of like extremely buff, extremely cool guys who just mash and play good defense um, that are not going to, that that will be gone soon and playing for other teams. Uh, and similarly, they've got a, a, a series of like, of like amazing pitchers who are going to have Tommy John, like within, by the time this podcast is over, there's going to be a, a breaking news <laughs> announcement that another, another race pitcher is having Tommy John. Yeah, um, I think in baseball, more than any other of the four major American sports, there are teams that you feel confident that if a player is going to go there, they're going to do well because they, like, they just seem to fix people. I'm like, yeah. I don't think that's necessarily the case with like basketball, right? Maybe like the like the like the seven seconds or less Suns like 15 years ago when you just could put someone next to Steve Nash and you know they would be good, but not really anymore. Yeah. Yeah, maybe the warrior, maybe like the Warriors, but that's such a specific thing that like there are guys that will be elevated by that, and other guys who will just be destroyed. Like, I mean, did tell you work, didn't didn't work for James Wiseman, that's for sure. Right, right, <laughs> right. Um, speaking of guys who are going to play for the Rays in a couple of years from now and like be really good, have you had a chance to watch Shintaro Fujinami pitch for the Oakland A's yet? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is this is like this is fun because like this is a guy who throws like hundred and three. Um, and has it, did not spend really any time in their minor league system. It's like, just come up here and throw as fast as you can in front of nobody in Oakland. I guess like playing in Oakland is probably lower stakes than playing for their Las Vegas minor league team at this point. So it makes sense. But talk about just like throwing a guy into the fire and not taking his development all that seriously. Definitely. I guess let's close on this. Is there any team in professional sports that you can think of that has squandered the amount of talent for this long that the angels have done. Well, I have to, I, I'm thinking like, I mean, no, I mean, cause like they're the only team that I can think of that has had consecutively the, the like the guy most recently called the greatest ever. It would be like if a basketball team had, had, Kobe for 10 years and then they had Kobe and LeBron at the same time for five years and then LeBron for 10 more years. And like, they made it to the, they got like swept in the first round by the nuggets every year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The only team that I can think that didn't reach as many championship aspirations as they should have over this long a time frame is those Lakers teams in the sixties. Okay. Yeah. But they were, but like they had just getting playoff success. In the finals. Yeah. They were just yeah. losing in the finals every year. Maybe yeah. maybe the nineties the nineties magic that had Shaq and Penny. Okay. Um but that's such a that's a far more compressed 
timeline. That happened sort of all at once. Yeah, I mean, well, that was the that was the last team to beat MJ, right? Yes, yes, they they did, and they did make a finals that year. But overall, you'd say like not a success, not a success. Yeah, maybe those like uh, those KG Timberwolves teams, but even that's like you know it's yeah. not the same level. You wouldn't have said it was an overabundant of. I mean, this you know, there's probably a hockey team that like neither of us are reaching for that like somebody in Vancouver's like. How the fuck do you not remember the 1976 Calgary Flames, you fucking hosers? You know? <laughs> yeah. Part of the original eight that just kept missing the bus because they're yeah, so yeah. hungover in the morning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think the lesson here is like, if you're going to have a major sports franchise, don't put it next to Disney because you'll have the greatest players of the generation, but you'll never win. <laughs> <laughs> just just a, a little like peek behind the curtain here. What what inspired me to uh, to, to to pitch this segment was... I was just, you know, as you do, I was just scrolling Otani's baseball reference page um, just for fun. Uh, and there was an embedded like Nick Wright video where he's like talking about if Otani's going to go back to the Angels or not. And I was like, oh, this is what baseball getting popular looks like. And I don't want that to happen. Here we cut in the Stephen A speech of the Angels being completely irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like that, if that's, if that's relevance, and I can speak to this from ex- like just the experience of being a, like a huge NBA fan during its like supposed dark period in the early 2000s. Like sometimes irrelevance can be a lot more fun. Sometimes like you just, you get like, you know, a, you get like a more dedicated fan around you who is interested, more interesting, who, who cares about more interesting and nuanced aspects of the game. You know, don't, don't rush to be relevant because pretty soon, you know, it's going to be dominated by Stephen A. Smith and Colin Coward doing, you know, four segments a day on where so-and-so is going to sign next or what so-and-so's agent said. And, you know, we, we'll, we're all better off about that crap. What Dave is saying is that baseball needs a malice at the palace. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen anyone punch anyone else as hard as when Rufnet Odor punched Jose Bautista in the <laughs> face. <laughs> And like the, and, the best call during that game, he says, "Now Rook did two for four on the night." <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? And nobody cared, and it was great. <laughs> All right, we'll be back to talk about some injury rock. Okay, so if you've listened to any previous episodes of the podcast, you know that Wolf and I will occasionally complain about the state of contemporary pop music. I mean, you've mostly heard me complain about that. Um, but rather than embrace doomerism, I've decided to scratch a little below the surface and explore what's happening in the world of contemporary indie. So today we're going to be discussing six new tracks, which I've pulled from Sirius XMU's Download 15. And uh, shout out to those guys. They're doing a good job over there. Uh, Wolf and I have both had a chance to listen to these and roughly grade them. And we're going to reveal those grades to each other and you right now. Okay, so these are the top six songs on the, uh, as I said, the Sirius XMU Download 15. Um, number six is a cover of Nick Drake's Free Ride by Liz Fair. You, I care sure, this is from an upcoming, upcoming compilation, The Endless Colored Ways, the songs of Nick Drake, which is a tribute album. Mm-hmm. Love me a tribute album. And I, this song is interesting. So like the, what's good about Nick Drake's original is that it's on Pink Moon, mm-hmm. which everyone kind of talks about for its, you know, uh, it's supreme British folk songwriting while yeah. ignoring the fact that Nick Drake is like a goddamn shredder on the guitar. Yeah. Yeah. And the shred on Nick Drake's original is just absolutely mind blowing to hear how easily he just plays this song with this intricate finger picking and like crazy chord changes too. Yeah. Kind of like jazzy chord changes. So Liz Fair kind of trades all that in for layers of instrumentation. Mm-hmm. And there's like, there's a drone that's underlying and there's yep. a persistent like 4 4 rhythm that's there. And the song kind of comes out almost like grimly Beatlesque in like the White Album sense. It also kind of reminded me if like, you know, if Free Ride uh, was taken for a spin by like Tusk era Fleetwood Mac, but yeah. like, but like B sides of that version. Mm-hmm. 
And so while like while I'm into artists covering songs and doing something with the source material that's original and kind of speaks more to their point of view and their voice, like I I understand what Fear's doing and points for trying, but this didn't pop for me. I gave it a C minus. Okay, yeah. So I also didn't love this. I gave it a I gave it a B minus. Um I think okay, so I know that people saying I wish Liz Fair would do more girly sounds type material is kind of a marker of being a bit of a rockist thick bro. And that's that's not where I'm coming from on this, but if any song ever called for that treatment, I do think it's something off of Pink Moon by Nick Drake. Um one thing that sticks out to me is I, I don't think Liz Fair is a conventionally great singer, but she's a very charismatic singer. And I, I don't know why she's trying to play this so straight. Like, I think just her with an acoustic guitar and embracing her limitations and her imperfections would have been better than just trying to play it so straight and so like overproduced. Um, uh, that being said, like if you're going to overproduce a song, I, I think they overproduce it kind of well like i do like that 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 organ that's just sort of humming along in the left channel it's kind of it's kind of interesting um you know i i'm not one of those people who thinks that she sucked after exile and guyville I actually kind of prefer whip smart uh i just this just didn't work for me either yeah i prefer whip smart too that's funny that you say that yeah. i think what it's tough because everything about this song is so textural and yeah. I think if you had a very good sound setup with surround sound, I think this would be really interesting to kind of like lose yourself in all the textures. But it's also kind of like the difference between seeing a painting, like an abstract painting that is gray in person and seeing a picture of it. Like yeah. when you're seeing it in person, like you can see like all the brush strokes and all the textural stuff that's yeah. going on there. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. it's like you lose yourself in a painting, but when I'm just listening to this as it is kind of like divorced from the rest of the tribute album, it's just kind of, I don't know. It just kind of feels like inert and yeah, just yeah. wasn't a whole lot going on. Yeah. Or maybe, or maybe just too much, too much going on, but none of it interesting enough to, to, to make it for a great, a great song. Um, okay. Uh, next we're going to talk about um, the song sliver of ice by and the taste of water on my tongue on my way towards oblivion uh beloved figure in indie music for for longer than it i realize at this point um uh, she's been with us for quite some time um i'll go first on this one since you went first last time um i think this song is very beautiful and quite subtle uh my first take on it was that it never really took off but I forced myself to go back and give it like a second, third and fourth chance because I do hold this songwriter in very high esteem. And what I found is that the final chorus is just an ever so gradual modulation intensity. But once you feel it, I think it takes the song from like kind of nice to pretty great. Um, I was kind of prepared to give this like a B minus, but the most recent time I listened to it, I'm going to give it an A. Okay. Yeah. On that last chorus, really nice clarinet work for Martin Slattery. I think that really helps the song pop. Yeah. And so uh, did you look into like the background of the song? I did. Yeah. Do you want to, do you want to share it? Um, sure. So okay. this is about Lou Reed and I'll quote Anthony here, quote, a friend of mine expressed to me in the final months of his life that the simplest sensations had begun to feel almost rapturous. A carer had placed a shard of ice in his tongue one day, and it was such a sweet and unbelievable feeling that caused him to weep with gratitude. He was a hardcore kind of guy, and these moments were transforming the way he was seeing things. I wrote Sliver of Ice, remembering those words of his. And Yeah. So here's a, before you get into your review of this, I want to ask you, actually, give me your review, then I'll ask you the question. Sure. So I think this works better within the context of the album my back was a bridge for you to cross mm -hmm. which is out now on secretly canadian and it functions well because before it is go ahead which is this like feedback howling one minute song which is kind of feels like an exorcism mm -hmm. and following the song is it must change <clears throat> oh, excuse me it's uh sorry it's can't 
And that song is more percussive and more representative of the album on the whole, which kind of has uh, a 60s soul st- vibe with strings that kind of reminds me of kind of like the more like uh, Baroque psychedelic soul of Minnie Ripperton's early mm-hmm. work, except mm-hmm. kind of far more spare because a lot of this was recorded in the studio live, which I found Mm -hmm. to be pretty interesting. And it was nice to hear Anthony go back to the Johnsons because this is her first album with them since 2010. Mm -hmm. So as a standalone, I gave this song a B, but again, that's only because I think it, you need to take this album as a whole and it's kind of hard to suck this song out of that hole, if that makes sense. It's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, there needs to be. We'll get to another uh, another song that I think works better within the context of the album later in, in the list here. Um, my question to you is: so I, I had the revelation revelation about what I loved about this song before I read the Lou Reed anecdote, but after reading it, I had an even deeper appreciation of it. And I, I, I question my question to you is like: does that kind of sidecar context, just knowing that kind of stuff, and enjoying a song more because of it. Do you think that's sort of cheating or does it even matter? I don't think it matters. I'm the kind of person that wants to know everything about a piece of work and it helps me contextualize stuff because I can think of the amount of times where I've I've dismissed something and then I've read something about it and just like, okay, this is what I was trying to say. I got it. Right. Right. I was uh, too dunderheaded to kind of like put that together. Right. Some people go into this stuff and they don't want to know anything. Yeah. They just want to have like a gut reaction to whatever the art is and, you say like that. So I think it's kind of like different strokes for different folks on that yeah. kind of that that end. But yeah, I mean, like knowing what it's about kind of makes the when when the clarinet hits, that's kind of like the ice yeah. melting on Lou Reed's tongue. Yeah, like that's like this the sweetness that he's feeling and like that unbelievable feeling. Yeah. So it goes from this cold spare song to this beautiful warm clarinet, and it's like you kind of understand like the thematics that are at play here. Yeah. Um, I think that as I get older, I'm more open to trying to take music on its own terms rather than just being like, this is what I like about music. If it does it, I'll like it. If it doesn't, I won't. And I'll just move on. And I'm reaching a point now where it's like maybe having made some music myself, realizing how hard it is and how much, you know, you know, people really sweat into this stuff. Like, if you can give me a little something that can help me understand where you're coming from and I can appreciate it more, I'm okay with that now. And I actually find that Lou Reed story quite beautiful. And the fact that it's enhanced my appreciation of this song, I just am more appreciative for it. Um, okay. Let's go on to the next one. Uh, this is, I think won't be a very long conversation. This is for a moment by Bethany Cosentino. Um, of of Best Coast. Uh, I gave this song a D. Uh, I really disliked it. Uh, what, I, what I would say here is there's just nothing left to interpretation in this song. It just feels so on the surface, such a, a really conventional chord progression, really conventional lyric, really conventional production. Um, I, it's, I mean, I know we're all kind of afraid of the AI revolution taking over music, but I have a feeling this is what the songs will sound like. And I don't think they're much of a threat. I am glad that you had a negative opinion on this because I thought this might be the one that splits us. Oh, interesting. You liked it. No, I hated it. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Did you have any feels for either like Pocahontas or Best Coast? Um, you know, uh, so the first Best Coast song when I'm with you, I have fun. That came out the year I moved to Los Angeles. And so like, I have very vivid memories of the video and like, and just like, you know, living in the same neighborhood as waves. And, you know, I don't want to say I love that music, but I have like a sort of like warm and slightly nostalgic feeling for that very stripped down kind of indie rock. Uh, this, I mean, and I, and I know the simplicity was the point in those days and it's the point now, but this is really overdoing it in terms of simplicity. Yeah, uh, Costantino said about this song, quote, the idea for For a Moment came to me one morning on a writing trip to Nashville. 
After waking up to the tragic news of an acquaintance's partner's sudden death, I was laying in bed thinking about how quickly it can all be gone and how important it is to lean into love and vulnerability while we're here. As the world changes, moments of joy mean more now than ever before, even if they last for only a moment. End quote. Um, didn't get that. <laughs> it's, it's funny because like I did get that. I got that by reading the lyrics. But I didn't I didn't I was like, so now I feel like an asshole because like, but this is this is the job. Uh you, if you read the lyrics, it's patently what the lyrics are about, but the song itself, nothing in the texture of the music communicates that sentiment. And yeah. you know, you know, I mean, uh, not to not to quote, you know, Leonard Bernstein here, but music is supposed to show you how thoughts feel. And this song does not show you anything. No, I thought this was a pale approximation of Sheryl Crow's early stuff. Just kind of like lightly updated for like to try to be like a pastiche of like 70s AM radio pop. And it just totally missed the mark. I think part of the reason it missed the mark is because Costantino doesn't have a pleasing singing voice. Yeah. And she's think, not. Yeah. Yeah. I think she's very underpowered for what the song is requiring. And she just does not have the chops for it. To people who don't like Sheryl Crow, this is what Sheryl Crow sounds like, I imagine. Move on to the next one. Uh, the next track is a song called Empty Mansions by Local Natives, another sort of, you know, middle of the road indie mainstay. I also really disliked this song. I also gave it a D. And uh, so you had mentioned before, like song like artists writing songs, like exclusively to get placed in network drama soundtracks. Um, this I think is the kind of song that is written exclusively to be placed in like a lo-fi chill study playlist. Uh, and it's, it's one of my least favorite types of music, which is sort of like the, medium funky indie rock uh yeah didn't didn't press a single one of my buttons so i don't remember this band at all but apparently this band is very popular it's Mm -hmm. second album hummingbird peaked at number 12 on the u.s album charts yeah and it had a song when am i going to lose you that was a top five single on adult alternative airplay so, so I, I will tell you, Wolf, that I, I, I did have that album and that is a, a pretty good song. Okay. Um, but that is, that was more of them sort of trying to do a, uh, a Fleet Foxes, uh, My Morning Jacket type thing, as opposed to what they've got going on here. Yeah. My buddy Aaron's band used to play with them all the time, apparently. And he said that they were okay. much better back in the day. So I will yeah. take his word for it. I call this stuff Millennial Muzak. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very insipid. There's nothing going on. I can't outright flunk this song because it doesn't inspire rage within me. And I yeah. should mention it has a bridge, which a lot of pop songs don't have <laughs> these days. Yeah, yeah. But D minus. We'll continue. All right, next up. Little Dragon, Disco Dangerous. Junkie, junkie for the rush. Uh, Wolf, I've got a feeling that you might know a little bit more about this group than I do. Uh, so do you want to give a, a quick little like thumbnail bio before we talk about the song? Swedish band that's been kind of like on the periphery of breaking out. They're kind of like the, the, the underground festival band that like cool kids will mm-hmm. go check out. Been around since the nineties. I think their first album came out in 2007 though. So they've always been kind of, always kind of been there. They've always had, kind of had like weird cred like you definitely yeah. know somebody who knows somebody who really loves little dragon. Yeah. But they've never really pierced the zeitgeist really. So that's, that's, that's my encapsulation of uh, what they're doing. Yeah. They, everything generally sounds kind of like sort of like a variation of the song where it's kind of like they apply trip hop aesthetics to different genres. At least that's how <laughs> I take it. Yeah. Uh, what'd you think about this song? Uh, like it's too cutesy for me. Yeah. And while I do find the arrangement to be novel in the sense that like the airiness of trip hop, applying that to dance music, that's kind of interesting, but it's also kind of working against it too, because there's not enough going on here. Right. And like, 
I listen like straight up disco all the time. So this mm -hmm. isn't like something that I ever need in my diet. Right. Really? Right. Because like I can just go to the genuine article. It's kind of like, remember when Daft Punk came out with that, that song with Niles Rogers and Pharrell? Yes. yes. And everyone was like, oh God, disco's back. Mike, disco didn't go anywhere. Right. Disco's right. been here. <laughs> like it, yeah. you were the ones that went. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're, yeah. Um, I, I will say it's, it's sort of like when, you know, uh, someone will have like a, a, like a metal riff in a, in an alt rock song. I'm like, Holy shit. Have you heard this? It's the heaviest thing I've ever heard. It's like, well, there is a whole like entire subculture built around this stuff, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it, it wouldn't hurt to be mildly aware of. Um, I didn't hate this. Uh, I, I think like this song might've suffered by uh just its relationship within this playlist i think i'm at this point i'm getting a little chilled out out it's just it's a little bit too much lo-fi beats to chill and study to for me at this point um there's something kind of cool about this song which is that about 120 it kind of sounds like it's going into a bridge but that bridge just turns out to be the rest of the song and then in like the last 15 seconds, it sounds like there's going to be sort of like a dance break or something. And that's just like the outro. And so I think that they're doing some cool stuff with structure here. That's, that's a little bit fun. Uh, I just wish they were putting like cooler stuff inside of the structure. Uh, but I did, I gave the song a B. Yeah, I gave it a C. You can tell that there's musicians behind this because it's yeah. very like, you know, like it's almost like self-consciously music smart in a way yeah but it kind of has the same problems as like a band like pomplemousse when they go like yes. supremely chill and like everything's way too subtle and it's just like i need somebody to do like an explainer breakdown to tell me why i should be wowed by this and i kind of feel like that is this song i will say that i went to listen to some of the other tracks in the album i've never been a little big little dragons person in to begin yeah. with but uh, the title track, Slugs of Love, that has more of a pulse to Slugs it. Slugs of Love is cool. Yeah. I like Slugs of Love. It kind of reminded uh, me of like updated like ESG or something, kind of like that yeah. like New York post-punk of like the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, and the next song on this album is called Lily's Call, I believe, and that had a little bit more of a pulse to it, a little bit more engine, and uh, I, I find myself digging that. I think if I were to, like so far, if there was a thread throughout all these songs is that there's just not a lot of like energy or momentum going on. It's all very vibes oriented so far. Yeah. Um, don't know if that's going to change on the last track we discussed, which is uh, from PJ Harvey's new album. Uh, and the track is called Seam and I. Only ease by scratching. Whispers, famous thistles, or sickly trick of whistles. Again, another song that might have been that might work better within the context of the album, but as a as a radio record, um, it just feels like a lot of buildup for not a lot of breakdown. Yeah, I concur. This is a, definitely a song that works better within the album. I'm gonna steal a one line explainer from AMG's heavy uh, Heather Fairs here. Quote, the album expands on Orlam Harvey's epic poem about the coming of age of Ira Abel, a young Dorset girl whose companions include the bleeding, ghostly soldier, Wyam Elvis, and Orlam itself, a lamb's eyeball that serves as a village oracle, end quote. So we're talking heady stuff here. You know, similar to Bethany Cosentino sharing like a very heartfelt uh, story about loss in her life and me not exactly feeling it on the record. I, I, there's a lot of like great context around this, but as a, as a piece of music writing, I, I just felt like it never went anywhere. Yeah. I don't think it's, it's a weird choice to suck this out as a standalone song, just because right. I think it's yeah. like one of the slightest songs in the album. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, out of all the songs here, it's probably like the most, that's the most traditionally PG Harvey, because yeah. it kind of has that prickly post-punk with the bluesy edge. Yeah. to it that you know her work at least prior white shock seemed to yeah. embody so i can i can kind of understand using this as an inroad to be like oh cool pj harvey has another record out let me check this out and then people checking out and be like whoa what the hell this is crazy so yeah didn't work for me as a the standalone song but i think it's a great album so i get this you've, song a b minus you've been digging the album yeah 
Okay. Uh, I haven't, I haven't spent, I haven't spent much time with this album, nor have I uh, really uh, dove into the NOE or the, uh, the Nick Drake uh, tribute, but I think I will be giving all three of those sometime in the coming weeks. Uh, Real quickly, sort of like a final thought on this, uh, on seam and I, uh, you may have noticed that PJ Harvey says the word wordle several times uh, in this song. It is not a reference to the New York Times crossword game. Uh, uh, quickly here, I will uh, reference an interview she did with Ann Powers and Ann asked in uh, the song Prayer to the Gate, which opens I inside the old year dying. You have a line, speak your wordle to me. Wordle here is not a popular American puzzle, but the term for word in the Dorset dialect, which you use throughout the album. And then uh, PJ Harvey responds, it quite quickly took its own shape and then felt like it was leading me. But for the keys that opened up the world for me, it was the Dorset dialect. As a poet, it gave me another lively form to work with because it gave the words a kind of double meaning. For instance, you're pulling the word wordle out, although it means word in Dorset. He's also got word in there. And of course, the word of God, it carries such an enormous capacity for wrapping everything together. And I just want to say, this is how much smarter PJ Harvey is than than I am because I heard Wordle and I was like, huh, crossword. <laughs> What's your opening word, Polly? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have to say, it didn't seem like neither of us really liked any of these songs all that much. Although I, I think I liked the Enhui song probably the most of the bunch, but I still had a good time doing this uh, because. You know, as I said earlier in the podcast, I've been listening to nothing but like REM albums that released 35 years ago uh, this month. So just sort of forcing myself to contend with like what's happening in new music was fun. Although you made a pretty good point about whether or not this constitutes new music before we started the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, all the artists are decades old. Yeah. And they've been in the biz and they're like, you know, they're like, these are like, you know, music standbys at this point. You can all right. you can you can run articles about all these artists on Stereo Gum, and people will be like, okay, yeah, I understand why this is here. Yeah, the um the the youngest of these groups, uh, which is either Bethany Costantino or local natives, have recording careers that are twice as long as the Beatles. Yeah, uh, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's where that and and that's maybe a conversation for another day, which is like. Bands just don't go away anymore, and that's and that's fine. You know, if you, making a career out of making music is a beautiful thing, and, and more power to the folks who can do it. Um, I think this is something that we'll do again, and we'll we'll pull some tracks from different uh, different areas, and maybe we'll do some hip hop in the future. Maybe we'll do some heavy metal. Who knows? Uh, time will tell. Uh, before we go, Wolf, do you have any uh, any final words? Good to be back. It is. It's not just good to be back. It's great to be back. That is it for us. Our theme song is Welcome, My New Sweet Breath. You can find that banger on its 1996 full-length Demolition Theater. You can find more of Greg Markle's amazing music at gregmarklemusic.com. You can subscribe to Run Out Grooves in your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a rating and review, please. If you like us, share us around. If you'd like to drop us a line, you can email us at runoutgroovespod at gmail.com. For Dave Fonseca, this is Wolf Rambats signing off. Goodbye. Yeah, yeah, yeah.